0: Make your way to the New Testament book of Ephesians. We come to the back half of Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. Those of you that maybe have been with us in recent weeks and months here at Redeemer know that we've been in the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, for some months now, but we're going to take a break once again today from that ongoing series to look at one of Paul's prayers. Uh, The reason why is twofold. One, it seems strange, certainly at least to me, and I don't find it terribly wise, For us to continue our study in Exodus when our next text is the fourth commandment, preaching and exposing that truth into an exclusively live stream medium is not best. But also as we're in the midst of a reset of sorts, I thought it could be quite helpful. And I trust beneficial to you this morning as we want to even maybe reset our hearts and souls on those matters of first importance. Uh, Spiritually, in a few places, I do think are better in God's word. Uh, For such a reset, then coming to this prayer that Paul offers at the end of Ephesians chapter 3. It is one of the most exalted prayers that you'll find in the Bible. And so we want to look at this morning, then verses 14 through 21 of Ephesians 3. Let me read that text for us this morning, and then we'll begin here now as God speaks to us through his word. For this reason, in height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we thank you that our Lord Jesus Christ is always interceding for us. Thus we know as we come to examine a text on prayer that our Savior is even praying for us this day. That your Spirit is also working within us as we study this passage not only to enlighten our minds in its truth, but to mold our hearts after your praying, Son. God, we ask that you would appropriately, that you would forcefully convict us where we need to be convicted this morning, that you would tenderly and lovingly comfort us where we need your comfort, that even in this study we might know something more, of the love of Jesus Christ, a love that has neither brim nor bottom, and we pray it all in his precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Dr. Edmund Clowney, for a number of years, was president at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, and later on in his career, he retold the story of an experience he had with his professor of systematic theology, who was none other than Professor John Murray. He went to Professor Murray with a private matter and And Murray offered to pray for Dr. Clowney. And Dr. Clowney recalled how he was only a few phrases into that prayer. Professor Murray was. Dr. Clowney realized it was as though he was treading on holy ground. Because as he was listening to Professor Murray pray, it seemed as though he was getting this intimate awareness of a man who had an intimate awareness of communion with God for Professors Murray. His language was, was full of this intimate familiarity with God's presence, and this awesome reverence at God's holiness. And there's no doubt that Dr. Clowney walked away from that prayer encouraged and I'm sure comforted in the midst of his private need. But he talked later on in life about how he was overwhelmingly convicted about how wooden and formal and mechanical his prayers were and how he knew little, of intimate familiarity with God. And it's true, if you wanted to find out a person's chief ambitions, most constant anxieties, just pay attention to the constancy, the fervency of their prayers. Or perhaps the simplest question I could ask you even this morning is, do you pray? And if you don't, what does that reveal about you? And you might say, "Oh, yeah, I do pray. For what do you pray? And what does that reveal about you? Because we're going to see this morning a prayer that convicts, it comforts, it inspires, it instructs. It's a prayer that guides us and it grows us after the image of Jesus Christ. It certainly is a prayer that's evergreen. It's always necessary for us to remember its truth. I do think we're going to see this morning, it's a prayer that is perhaps particularly pointed for a time like ours when disruption, even potential division over pandemic, continues to plague many, not only in our church, but in our context and nation. It's a prayer that's pointing us to the supreme enjoyment and experience of joy in Jesus Christ in the inner being. And so our theme this morning then is praying for heaven on earth. And the prayer, you might have noticed, children, as I read it, it's got kind of your basic parts. It's got an introduction, it's got a body, and it's got a conclusion. And so we're just going to walk through the prayer in three simple parts. The first of which we turn to now in verse 14 and 15, which I'm calling the audience for prayer. The audience for prayer, because notice the phrase that begins verse 14, for this reason. Now, students, whenever you come across a phrase like that in the Scripture, you should be thinking, and I hope you do, well, I wonder what Paul just said that's causing him now to pray. So you might look back to verse 13, or perhaps even verse 12, for that immediate truth that's now causing Paul to pour out his heart before the Lord. But in Ephesians 3, you actually have to look further up. If you go back to verse 1 of the very chapter, you'll see the same phrase show up for this Reason. And if you know anything about Ephesians chapter 3, what happens, it seems, is in verse 1, Paul mentions his identity as a prisoner for the Gentiles. And then in verse 2 through 13, he goes on this relatively long digression where he's talking about his ministry on behalf of the Gentiles and preaching the unsearchable riches. Of Jesus Christ. And so, really, then, what he picks up in verse 14 is what he meant to do in verse 1. So, therefore, the reference for this reason refers to the end of chapter 2 in Ephesians. And it was the end of chapter 2, verse 11 through 22. He's talking about the, the peace that's ours in Jesus Christ, that Jew and Gentile who used to be opposed to one another. There was hostility, there was enmity. Now God in Christ Jesus has reconciled the two into one body and is building them up into a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. And so what Paul's doing now in verse 14 of chapter 3 is praying for that truth to become a reality in the life there of the church at Ephesus. And before he turns to the audience for prayer, you'll notice he speaks about the posture of his prayer. He says, "...for this reason..." I bow my knees. Now, if you know anything about Jewish culture at the time, uh, when you prayed, you almost always prayed standing up with eyes and arms raised towards heaven. Some of you might think of this well-known parable Jesus gave about the Pharisee and the publican where they're praying. And he says each man stood up to pray. You'd only bow your knees in Jewish culture in prayer if there was this overwhelming, this weighty sense of earnestness. That means you couldn't stand any longer, that you had to bow your knees before the Lord in prayer. Such was your earnestness, such was your reverence, such was your passion for the petition that you're bringing before the Lord. And I wonder when was the last time any of you bowed your knees because of the agony and anxiety that you felt in prayer. Or perhaps even you might recognize this morning That your knees are too stiff spiritually to bow before the Father, for He is the audience for prayer. Verse 14 to 15 continues, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Verse 15 is one of those verses in the Pauline letters that has generated no small number of comments and debates throughout the ages about what Paul exactly means by these phrases in verse 15. It could mean something as simple as, well, God is the one who is the Father over the church triumphant in heaven and the church militant on earth. And that's possible. But what seems to be more likely in the original is he's employing this play on words that Paul will often do. You could almost translate the phrase there in verse 15 as saying something to the effect of, I bow my knees before the Father in whom all fatherhood is named. It seems as though Paul is calling on this rich truth that, of course, God is the perfect Father. And thus all fatherhood on earth is derived from Him. And if that is indeed what he's talking about, it ought to be a great comfort to some of you watching, listening today, where you would say, your father has not been a good example of godliness. Your father has not been one devoted to Jesus Christ. It's the good news, isn't it, of Christianity in part, that if you turn from your sin, if you trust in Jesus Christ, what you'll find now is a perfect father, in whom you are named by adoption as his child, that comes to you with such kindness and compassion that then with overwhelming confidence you can bow to him in prayer. So, God the Father, the audience for prayer. Now, the bulk of Paul's ensuing prayer gets us to the second section the asks of prayer. The asks of prayer. And before he gets to the petitions, he wants us to know. The, the bounty from which God can answer our prayers. You see, verse 16 begins that according to the riches of his glory. Kids, you might hear the word riches and think of money. But of course, God is not full of glory and cash or currency. Uh, what Paul's speaking of here is this everlasting. Reserve, or this eternal reservoir from which he draws power and supply to answer the needs of his people. And if you just glance down through the ensuing verses, really verse 16 through 19, even though it's full of phrases, it's full of words, it's full of rich truth, Paul is only making two petitions to the Lord. Both of those petitions are rooted in a request for strength. So, ask number one, he prays for strength so that Christ's life fills our hearts. That's what he's going to say in verse 16 through 17. Notice as it continues that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. I remember times when all of our children, And they would close the door because they had the power within them to close that door. But they didn't have the strength, did they, to stand up and open the door. So they would close the door and then sooner or later, much sooner than later, you normally hear them cry out, which was their own way of crying out for help. Saying, I'm powerless, I need someone powerful to come and help me. And the same thing is true spiritually, Paul is saying here, isn't he? That apart from the Spirit's power, that Christ would dwell within us inside... There's no hope of strength in our lives. And notice, of course, even the direction, the endpoint, if you will, of that power that Christ would dwell in our hearts. The Spirit would fill us in the inner being. The inner man, as old translations would say. You know, students, I'm sure you've recognized that we live in a culture today, don't we? We live in a context today that is overwhelmingly focused on the external physical realities. Uh, many of us, I suppose, more than we want to admit, so focused on physical muscle growth, tone in a certain body image. Which Paul will say in another one of his writings, such kind of physical training, it's of some value. But he says what is of eternal value is paying attention to the matters of the heart, the internal realities of, of godliness and holiness. When was the last time that you prayed for God to open your heart? To fill your heart with the Spirit's strength. That you might know the true fullness of life in Jesus Christ. Because that's the purpose, isn't it? Notice how he continues into verse 17. We need strength from the Spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You might ask the question here, well, isn't it true for those that have been converted, those that have been saved, those that have been adopted, isn't Christ already dwelling in their hearts uh, through faith? Well, that's true. But Paul's making a more nuanced point, and it's related to the word, the verb he's using here for Christ dwelling in our hearts. I remember in days when I used to play soccer, there was almost this superstitious belief that permeated many a locker room that the minute a player would invest in local real estate, namely they'd buy a house, it was the minute they began this ticking clock of getting traded to another location, perhaps even getting cut from the team. So most players thus would never buy an actual apartment or a house in which to live. They would always rent space and they very much had this mentality for however long they were on the club or on the team. They were just passing through. And Paul has a a verb at his disposal for dwell that he uses in other writings that essentially means a dwelling that is very much that of a sojourner, of, of just passing through. But he's using a much stronger verb here in verse 17. This is a verb that speaks of taking up a permanent residence, of making the heart his home. And so just as you might buy a house, and over time, isn't it true that you fill it up with your stuff? You know, your furniture, your decorations, even your presence, perhaps even your family's presence, increasingly marks that home as yours. Uh, Paul's saying, we want to pray for strength in the Spirit, that the Spirit would enlarge our hearts, that with each passing year, it would be evident more and more that this is Christ's home within us. So he prays for strength that Christ's life would fill our hearts. That's the first request. The second ask at the end of verse 17 through 19 is he prays for strength so that Christ's love would fill our minds. Notice the end of verse 17 through the beginning part of verse 19. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, in length, and height, in depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, if you see those verbs that conclude verse 17, you might notice that one is horticultural, grounded, I'm sorry, rooted, and one is more architectural, grounded. It actually is this kind of a striking way of using image imagery to tell us that we have to simultaneously be growing down into Christ's love in order that we can grow up into Christ's love. We need the Spirit's strength to do this. This love that has no brim or bottom, which is what those phrases in verse 18 speak about. It's eternal. It's limitless in its nature. So Paul comes then to 19, the true nature of why we need this strength is that we would know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. Even the language that he uses in verse 18, the verb comprehend, it actually is a military verb more often than not in the Old Testament. It shows up a number of times in the book of Judges and it will speak of God's people capturing a city. Or God's people enveloping an army. And it's as though Paul is saying here as the captain of the church there at Ephesus. That they need to capture the love of Jesus Christ. They need to envelop the love of Jesus Christ. They need to grasp it. They need to get it. They need to to gain it. And he recognizes why they need so much strength in the spirit to do this. is because it's almost as though he's praying for the impossible to be possible. Because you see that even in verse 19, that you would know the unknowable, that you would comprehend the incomprehensible, that you would attain to the unattainable this love of Jesus Christ. Now when Robert Murray McShane, that famous pastor in Scottish Presbyterianism, died in 1843 at the tender age of 29, Well, what happened was a number of remembrances and memorials kind of poured into his family's mailbox. These came from friends, these came from church members, even common citizens in Dundee that tried to capture what McShane's ministry meant to them, how it influenced them. And the best one I've read, or at least certainly my favorite memorial that was ever written of McShane, came from his close friend James Hamilton who is pastor of the Presbyterian Church in Regent Square of London. and Hamilton wrote to Robert's father, Adam. And towards the end of his memorial, uh, what he said to Adam was this, I never knew one so instant, in season and out of season, so impressed with the invisible realities, and so faithful in reproving sin and witnessing for Christ. Love to Christ was the great secret. Of all his devotion and consistency. And those of you who are members here at Redeemer, don't you think that that would be a wonderful motto for our mission, our memorial in time for our ministry? Love to Christ was the great secret of all their devotion and consistency. I've certainly thought about this much in the last year probably much more in recent weeks, recognizing that Satan doesn't want us to focus, concentrate, and be absorbed with the realities of Christ's everlasting, eternal, limitless, bottomless, brimless love. But don't you think that so many of the quarrels and disagreements we continue to have over things like a pandemic would have well been passed if Christ was the all-absorbing passion of our hearts? Of Christ, not COVID, was ever before our minds. Many things might be different in our life. Perhaps it's true, some of you need to hear that if you were less in concerned with getting infected with a disease, and also much more concentrated on getting infected with Christ's love, that our lives might be different. Love to Christ doesn't it come from knowing the love of Of Christ. It was Christ's love that caused him to go into the wilderness. To receive and endure and be victorious over Satan's assaults. It was Christ's love that enabled him to endure familiar, physical, ministerial pain. It was Christ's love that allowed him to persevere through the the fury of unreasonable leaders. The disappointment of his friends. Wasn't it Christ's love? That caused him to hang on that cursed tree willingly, lovingly, undergoing the baptism, the flood-like vengeance that was God's wrath in your place. The love of Christ that knows no breadth, length, height, depth, no brim, no bottom in this love. Do you know something? Maybe it's even the smallest of something, but the sincerest of something. Of this love of Jesus Christ. Paul prays for strength in two areas, doesn't he? That Christ's life would fill our hearts. That his love would fill our minds. So it's natural then that he ends where he does. Notice verse 19. That we might be filled with all the fullness of God. So you see the Trinitarian nature, I trust students, of this prayer. We need the Spirit's strength So that we can get the Son's love and then be built up into the Father's fullness. This is praying for heaven on earth. This is setting your minds on things above. This is seeking things that are above. This is the language and conversation of heaven. Because isn't it true, in perhaps ways we haven't always understood, it's in prayer that we on earth are lifted up to heaven's highest summit. And it's in prayer that we call down here on earth heaven's strongest power. He's showed us the audience for prayer. He's given us the asks for prayer. But Paul's still not done with his prayer. He hasn't even reached its pinnacle moment, which comes now as we turn in verse 20 and 21. Lastly, in this third section, to the adoration in prayer. This adoration that begins with the focus on God's power. Notice verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. So many times in the Christian life it feels as though that we're supposed to be praying for these spiritual realities that seem altogether impossible. Perhaps in our current context. Perhaps in light of the overwhelming sin that resides in our hearts, we're asking God to do something that seems altogether impossible for Him to do. And thus Paul goes now to Him, a God who has power to do the impossible. He focuses not only on God's power, doesn't He, but also God's praise. You'll see verse 21 ends the prayer to Him. Be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever. And ever. Amen. Now I do you think you can circle that three word phrase at the beginning in our English Bibles. Verse 20. Now to him. And take that also perhaps as a motto for your own life. In my job. Now. To him. In my school. Now to him. In my friendships. And now to him. In my home. Now To Him. In this church. Now to Him. In a pandemic. Now. To Him. This is praying for heaven on earth. Will you pray for an experience of heaven on earth this week? There's only a few fiction books or series that I ever reread with some degree of regularity. I've had enough time in recent weeks to march through one series that I seem to get through about every three or four years. I happen to be listening to this one on audiobook. And earlier this week, I came to one of those scenes, you know, when you re-listen to or reread these series every three or four years. You, you remember the broad outlines and a number of the details, but there's certain minute details that you just forget. Oh, yeah, I, I remember that that was in this book. And so, in this fifth book we were reading, or I was listening to, I should say, uh, the few major characters are there in an opening scene where they're wanting to listen in on a conversation that's going on in a room at the bottom of the house when they're up at the top of the house and being magic folk they kind of create these extendable ears is what they call them and drop them down the stairway so they could listen up above to what's being heard there down below and in his own kindness and compassion as though through his word God gives us an extendable ear doesn't he that we might listen to perfect prayer for that's what this is in verse 14 through 21. He doesn't want to keep this prayer from us, does he? He wants to give it to us, that we might grow in it, that we might use it, that we might grow through it. It's a a prayer that speaks to us, not just teaches us. It's a prayer that, that preaches to us. And so as we close, let me just bring three more things to your attention this morning about what this prayer preaches. First, the prayer shows us that coming to Christ is a necessity coming to Christ is a necessity. It's possible. Certainly likely, isn't it? Some of you watching and listening, you wouldn't say that you've repented of your sins, that you've trusted in Jesus Christ. Take it as a kindness of the Lord this morning to show you your sad condition apart from Christ. Doesn't this text tell us? You don't have his spirit, lest you have no eternal strength. You don't have his son, Thus, you don't have eternal love. You don't have the Father. Thus, you don't have eternal fullness. It is a sad and pitiable state outside of Christ. But to turn from your sin and trust in Him, the great good news of this passage, this prayer, this preaching, is that in Jesus Christ, you lack no such thing. The Spirit's everlasting strength is yours. The Son's everlasting love is yours. The Father's everlasting fullness is yours. Number two, the prayer shows us the importance of church community. And it's easy to actually overlook it. Notice again verse 18. He's praying that we might have strength to comprehend. And he includes this phrase, with all the saints. Comprehending Christ's incomprehensible love is is a church endeavor in its truest sense. You can, no doubt, make measurable strides in knowing Christ's love apart from the church community. But what the text is telling us, that you won't make immense strides, profound steps forward apart from the church community, without the gathering of God's people, It's as though we almost have a governor on our knowledge of Jesus Christ. We need each other. We need the means of grace. We need God's people. And it's why even he focuses, once again, not just in the petition in the church context, but, of course, the praise in the church context. You see again, verse 21, to him be glory in the church. In the church. So, grandparents and parents recognize that one of the best things you can do for your grandchildren or grandchildren or children, or perhaps even if you're watching, listening, your great grandchildren. That's to show them the joy of a life that is every way centered on the community of Christ's body, knowing that without the church we won't ever begin to truly comprehend the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So it's a prayer that shows us that coming to Christ is a necessity It shows us the importance of the church community. Finally, it shows us the nature of God's ability. In the original language, what Paul is essentially doing in verse 20 is inventing words. We might call it something like a super superlative is what he's employing in verse 20. Now to him that is who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. I know. In your own home, in your own life, everyone listening, watching, there is something to which you can point, at which you can look, where you need this immeasurable might of God. And aren't you encouraged this morning that He has it? That our God makes the impossible altogether possible. How do you know even that He can do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Well, hasn't He already done it? Which one of us would have thought or asked for God to send His one and only Son to save us from our sin? You know, kids, if you were to fill all of the oceans of the world with ink and then were given the commission to write the glories of Christ's love and power across the sky, you would drain those oceans dry before you came to the end of Christ's love, Christ's strength for His people. What you need this week is strength, don't you? That Christ's life would fill your heart. Strength that Christ's love would fill your mind. That you might be built up as a dwelling place, we as God's people, into the fullness of the Father. This is praying. For heaven on earth. Let's pray together. Father we do thank you for your patience towards us. We know how easy it is for us to so focus on matters in this world. That we do not lift our gaze up above. To where Christ is seated at your right hand. He who is our all. He who is our life. Father, we thank you for the Spirit's indwelling power. We thank you for the Son's indwelling love. We do thank you for your eternal fullness given to us. Work those realities into our heart this week that we might abound in your praise in every station saying now to him. And we do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we want to respond to God's